Hebrews chapter 9. The title of this message from Hebrews chapter 9 is Only Jesus Gets Us There. Only Jesus Gets Us There. Now, to help you understand this message, I'm hoping that you heard the last couple from the book of Hebrews. If you haven't, I want you to get a hold of them sometime soon. They are very important messages. Last week, we talked about the difference between the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And this is a foundational truth that we've got to lay hold of in Christianity, that God deals with us according to grace, not according to merit and performance. We must lay hold of that. Absolutely foundational. And when you lay hold of grace, it changes your whole world. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I want you to get that message. And then the week prior in our study, we talked about being in the room with God. And the throne room and how the way to the throne room has been opened by the cross of Jesus Christ. And that that is a future reality for us being in the presence of God and a current reality. We talked about how to cultivate that and how to pursue after that being in the presence of God. Those are foundational important messages for your understanding of today's message. If you were here for those, you'll notice a lot of repetition. Really, there's not much new material in chapter 9. The book of Hebrews in the last few chapters has been somewhat repetitious by design. The author's wanting to get his points across. And the book was written to be read in one sitting originally. We're taking years and years and years to study it. And we're unpacking these concepts over and over. So we're going to move through chapter 9 pretty quickly. And you'll be able to refer back to the things that you learned previously and should have a real good understanding. Let's pray and get into it. Lord, we're excited about your word this morning because in it we discover more of you, more about your heart and your plans and your will and your work in this wonderful thing of salvation that you've brought us into. And we ask that this morning, Holy Spirit, you'd make us alive to the word of God, that you would give us faith to receive it and to act upon it, and that the word of God, by the working of the Holy Spirit, would be transformative in our lives today. Lord, save us from religion. Save us from going through the motions. We want to be a transformed people. We don't want to be a cold religious people. We want to be an on-fire relational community, loving you, Jesus, and receiving your love. So work that in us, God. Holy Spirit, I would submit my mind and my mouth to you. We don't want to hear the opinions of man or the wisdom of man. We want the unadulterated, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. So Holy Spirit, thou art the teacher of all things. Come and teach us and do a cool work in our hearts today. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the first five verses and go through it very quickly. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We won't deal with them in detail either. We'll just go over it very quickly. For many of us, this is familiar ground. What's being spoken of here was the tabernacle that was built by Moses and the children of Israel as ordained and commanded by God. It was the place where God told his people Israel he would manifest his presence and he would meet with them and speak to them, this tabernacle. It's called an earthly structure or, excuse me, the earthly sanctuary in verse 1. And we have a picture of it here on the screen for you to look at. Uh, that's not an actual picture. There weren't cameras then, but, but an artist's rendering of the earthly tabernacle or uh, the sanctuary that traveled with the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. It's there that the sacrificial work was done. It was there where the people would come to worship the Lord and seek the Lord. The Lord would meet with his people. It's there where the priests would do their work. And it was there where God would manifest his Shekinah glory. 
Now that tabernacle later, beyond, later became the temple. Solomon in 1 Kings built the temple. And we have a picture of that there. Again, not a picture, an artist drawing it. But that is the temple that Solomon built. The precursor of it was the tabernacle. To give you a little orientation, we're going to show you a picture now of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where Solomon's temple once stood. There is the Temple Mount. Understand that there is no Jewish temple there today. Please don't miss that. The two structures that we see on there today are Muslim. You have to your left-hand side the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's that little black dome and the black roof. And then on the right-hand side, you have the Dome of the Rock, which is a commemorative sort of thing, a Muslim commemoration there. But there's no Jewish temple standing there right now. But the Bible tells us that in the last days, a temple will be rebuilt. And in the tribulation period, sacrifices will be going on in Israel and that the Antichrist will walk onto the Temple Mount into the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be God. And the you-know-what hits the fan at that time. So it's important that we know where that place is at geographically. Now we'll give you a bit of a bird's eye view from the same corner of the Temple Mount up from the sky now so you can get a view of the breadth of it. Now back to the tabernacle. We have on the screen now a little layout of it. And what we see is that outer retaining wall and then we see an inner wall. The outer wall, the area inside that was open to the elements. The inner walls was a contained structure. And there we find in that first little uh, rectangle there, the holy place. The holy place would be entered by the priests every single day to do their priestly works. The lampstand was in there and they would go in and tend to the lampstand. The candelabra, that one that we often see, is a representative of Israel with its seven points. We have a picture of that. There was also the table of showbread and the sacred bread was there. Twelve loaves of bread always in there representing the twelve tribes of Israel and the priests would come in and change those out every week. So all throughout the week, the priests were in their ministry. We don't have time to go into it, but all of those things were representative of, pointed to, were foreshadows of, types of the person of Jesus Christ. The candelabra, speaking of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And the showbread, speaking of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. So there is this elaborate worship structure in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, all of it pointing to the, to the person of Jesus Christ. If you were to continue toward the back of the holy place, you would come to a veil. There was a veil there. This separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy of holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was also at times the uh, altar of incense in there. We have a picture of that. The Ark of the Covenant, we have a picture of that. This was where God would manifest His Shekinah glory among His people. The Ark was cool. Uh, There was cool stuff in it. There was a golden jar full of manna, right? That stuff that they ate when they were traveling through the wilderness. And you can imagine they would have made manna cotti and banana manna nut bread and mayonnaise out of it. Got so tired of just manna all the time. There was a golden jar holding the manna. There was Aaron's rod that budded, his staff. It budded because his leadership was challenged. And God said, I'll show you who the man is. And caused Aaron's uh, rod, rod to bud. And they put that in there as well. And then there was the tables of the covenant. And those were the tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written. So, Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you ever did find the thing, and you open it up, a golden jar full of manna, the rod that budded, and then the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. That was in the Holy of Holies. If you're a Jew, you're flipping your flipping lid when you're thinking about what's in the Holy of Holies. Add to that the Shekinah glory of God manifest. Now, Everything about this worship structure spoke of separation. Everything. You had the outer walls and the children of Israel would camp out outside those walls. Not everybody was allowed to go in. Some could go in. And then once you went in, there was the brazen laver and you had to clean. And then there was the altar and you had to bring the sacrifice and you had to sacrifice and it had to be just right and just the right sacrifice. And then that's as far as you went unless you were from the right tribe and the right family. If you were from the right tribe and the right family and it was the right day and the law came up with your name, then you could go into the holy place and minister. But only one person, 
only once a year ever got to the actual presence of God, and that with fear and trembling. The whole structure, as awesome as it was, as elaborate as it was, as beautiful and intricate as it was, the whole thing speaks of separation. Nobody ever got to God. Verse 6, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That, of course, is referring to the Day of Tome or Yom Kippur, the only time when only one man, the high priest, would enter in to the very presence of God just long enough to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice that would temporarily cover the sins of the nation, and then he would be removed. Then he'd get out of there. Now, the point of this, as we see in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So here's what we have in the Old Testament worship structure. We have a very intricate, elaborate thing that required much of the people. Only certain ones would ever go in. Only certain ones would ever go any further. There was washing. There was cleansing. There was times. There was season. There was sacrifice. There was separation. God was communicating to humanity, I am separate from you. That's what it means to be holy, to be separate, to be holy and completely other. I am separate from you was the key point of communication. Tantamount to that point of communication was this, and you are not holy. They were under the law. And being under the law, they knew how miserably they fell short of the standard of God. 613 laws which they were commanded to obey. And God dealt with them according to the law. This is the the old covenant. This is a Mosaic covenant. When they performed well, they were blessed. When they didn't perform well, they were cursed and even died. It was a merit and demerit system. And no matter how good you were, you never got to God. Because God is holy and you're not. That's a bummer. That's a bummer. Verse 11 turns a corner. But when Christ appeared. Okay, okay, okay. Those are wonderful words. But when Christ appeared. Everything is going to change when Jesus comes on the scene, people. Everything changes when Jesus comes on the scene because he comes as Emmanuel, God with us. Previously, there was denoted separation. Now Jesus comes as God draped in humanity and there is intimate communion and communication. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But when Christ appeared, those are good words. But when Christ appeared, everything would change. And we refer back to the teaching on the new covenant last week and that God would begin to deal with humanity according to grace and performance is removed and favor is given. Now, but when Christ appeared, those are words that some of us need to lay hold of this morning. You know Jesus Christ. You've made a commitment to the Lord, but you're wandering. Many of you are in that situation today. You know you're not where you need to be with the person of Jesus Christ. You understand that you're making a mess of things. You understand that you're far off from the Lord. I think of the woman at the well. If anybody ever made a mess, she made a mess. Gee whiz, she had made a mess. What did Jesus do? Jesus purposed to go and to meet that woman. And she'd been trying to get to God. She was talking about the worship structure that she knew and and the worship structure of the Samaritans. And Jesus stopped her in her immorality, in her sin, in her false worship structure. And she said this, listen, lady, here's the deal. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. What was communicated to this lady was, you really have made a mess. 
You really are off track here. But stop all your striving. Stop all the drama. Get on your face and worship God and he'll come and find you. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Some of you need to do this today. Quite frankly, you're making a mess. You're making bad decisions. Your life is getting complicated and weird because you're not walking in the spirit. You're not following in the Lord. You're being driven by the flesh. You're doing stupid things. And now you feel far off from God. And quite frankly, it seems complicated to get back, but it's not. I would recommend to you today that you come after this service and you get on your face before the Lord. And you'll say, Lord, I've made a mess. But here I am and worship him with every fiber of your being. And the promise of Jesus is that the Father will come and find you. He's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Everything changes according to this phrase, but when Christ appeared. Some of you need Jesus to make a brand new triumphal entry into your life today. Christ needs to appear again today. You've put him in the peripheral. You put him on the back burner. You're trying to be the captain of your own ship, so to speak, and it's not working. But when Christ appeared, let him appear in your life today. Surrender your life and your agenda and your drama to him today. I assure you, he will give you grace because we are in the covenant of grace and he doesn't deal with you according to merit or demerit, but according to the performance of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection is how the father views us in grace. So come and get on your face and let the Lord do a fresh work in your heart today. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he's a mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus comes and he fulfills all that the law and the old covenant pointed to. Both in its demands and in its form, Jesus fulfills these things. When Christ appeared and he came to accomplish eternal redemption, as it says in verse 12. That concept of redemption is important for us to remember. As sinners, namely before we come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are in bondage. The Bible says that we are in bondage to sin and to Satan. This is not a popular message. In fact, a lot of churches don't even talk about it, but the Bible does, so we'll talk about it. If you haven't come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are in bondage to sin and to Satan. Now, you don't think you are, and I've got news for you today. That's exactly how Satan wants it. You see, Satan in America does his best work covertly. He would love for you to think that you're footloose and fancy free when in reality, you are bound and held in captivity to sin and to Satan. He'll make you do, he'll do everything he can to make you think that you are free. He's happy if you think he doesn't exist. Satan is most happy when people deny his existence because that's when he can be most covert and sneaky, sneaky. And what he wants to do is hold humanity subject to slavery. Jesus said, I've come to give abundant life, but Satan came to kill, to steal, and destroy. He wants to rip off young girls. He wants to rip off young men. He wants to destroy fathers. He wants to destroy families. He wants to kill where God intends for there to be life. And the best way that he does it is when we most deny his existence in society. 
When you think you are most free apart from Jesus Christ is when you are most in bondage. The Bible declares that before coming to Jesus Christ for freedom and the forgiveness of sins, you are in bondage to sin and to Satan. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, speaking of Christians, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's another unpopular point. People love to say we're all children of God. That is not true. The Bible says that without Jesus Christ, you are a child of wrath. People like to think we're all free children of God, but the Bible says you're in bondage to sin and to Satan, and you are a child of wrath because you're in rebellion to God and you've offended a holy God. We are all God's creation, but we have fallen from communication and community with Him. And so now being separate from Him, we are children of wrath. We don't become sons and daughters until we repent of our sins and receive the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for ourselves. Then we experience what is called adoption and we are brought into the family of God. Until that point, we are alienated from God by our sins, held captive by Satan. If you don't realize that you're in that state today and you haven't come to Jesus Christ, it's because the New Testament says your eyes have been blinded by Satan. Hey, this is bad news, dude. This is bad news. Satan has you in captivity to sin and he's got you blinded. You think you're free, but you're bound. You think you're a child of God, but you're a child of wrath. The way that your eyes are opened is when you repent of your sins. When you come before a holy God and say, you're right. I have been so wrong. I repent of my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for my sins and that he rose from the dead to give me eternal life. I don't understand it all, but I know I need it. Jesus, forgive me. Then your eyes are opened and you see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. You see, what Jesus does is he redeems us. He redeems us from that captivity, from that bondage. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means that he has regained possession of us. He's regained possession. We fell in the garden. We are all sinners that fall short of the glory of God. But what does it mean when it says in verse 12 that he has accomplished eternal redemption? He's regained possession of us. Colossians 1 speaks of it in verses 13 and 14 about Jesus. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen to that language. He has rescued us. That is the language of salvation. Humanity needs to be rescued. Humanity is in trouble. They must be rescued. And there is only one rescuer who has proven his credentials by rising from the dead and his name is Jesus Christ. And when we come to him and repent of our sins, we are redeemed. He regains possession. Notice what it says. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a rescuing from darkness and there's a change of address. That's good news. A rescuing from darkness and a change of address. The old things pass away, all things become new. We go from being children of wrath who are dead in our sins to being sons and daughters of the king who are alive to the living God. There is a permanent address change that takes place when you come to Jesus Christ. Rescued from darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus said in Matthew 16, in a place called Caesarea Philippi, just north of the Sea of Galilee, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, you know what gates are? They're defensive. 
You know who Jesus is? He's the one who storms the gates of the hell and and rescues people. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God pushes forward. The kingdom of God is on the move. He's a rescuer. He's a savior. He's a redeemer. And along with his church, he storms the gates of hell and he removes people from darkness and brings them into the kingdom of the beloved son. Satan wants to keep people bound in fear. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14 says, Since the children, speaking of humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Satan wants to keep people bound and in fear and subject to death. Jesus wants to set people free, give them peace and joy in life. There are only two sides. There are only two sides. And so because we are redeemed, Romans chapter 6 says this in verse 11 and 14, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. This thing of redemption is real. This is not pie in the sky theology. This is not ethereal. This is not theoretical. This is real. That the power structure of sin is broken in the life of the believer. The power structure of sin is broken in the life of the believer. The penalty of sin is removed and we have been set free, having been redeemed. Now, This redemption was costly. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back. You were costly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited by your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Our redemption was incredibly costly. I mean, the God of the universe draped himself in humanity, subjected himself to be born of a woman, laid in a manger, working with his hands, walking in the land, mocked, despised, rejected, beaten, spit upon, beard ripped from his face, flesh ripped from his back, thorns pressed into his brow, and nails pierced through his hand. Blood spilt for our redemption. Our redemption was costly. And church, we need to know that as it was costly, there is a right response to this wonderful salvation. There is a right response. The verse that precedes 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 is verse 17. And it says this, If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Meaning, live with a healthy fear of God. Live reverently toward God. Live mindful that He is God in heaven. And we're just dirt. And we've been bought with a price that we are His. And so that begins to dictate the way that we live. In fact, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. It's not your prerogative. You belong to Jesus Christ. And you were redeemed, you were bought, you were purchased from the auctioning block of sin and death with the precious blood of the Lamb. 
And now our lives belong to him. And so we are to live accordingly. What does it say? Glorify God in your body. Conduct yourselves with fear in your stay on the earth. Live right in the eyes of Jesus Christ. The church today is given to sloppy living. We've bought into easy believism and a soft sell of the gospel and discipleship. And we're really into cheap grace. And what we want is fire insurance. That's not what Jesus called us to. He said, you want to come after me? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and come. Follow me. We've been redeemed. Our lives are his. The goal of the Christian is to glorify God with our lives. Here is the point of application. This will take some unpacking in your life. Perhaps you'll discuss it in your home groups this week. How can I glorify God in my body? How can I live a life that is reverent toward God? What behaviors, in light of this fact that I'm not my own, I belong to Jesus Christ, bought with a price, what behaviors need to go now? What activities need to be reined in and hemmed in? What things should I be pursuing There is a sick mindset in many Christians today. It's this. How much can I get away with and still be cool with God? I don't know that anybody that has that mindset has been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a perverse mindset. Imagine if my attitude with my wife was, how many times can I be an adulterer? How many times can I ignore you How many times can I run off on you? How often can I cheat on you and still have you stay with me? That's sick. But that is many Christians' mindset towards God. They play the harlot against him. They want to know how far they can go and still be okay. That's not the mindset of someone filled with the Spirit of God. The mindset is, How can I glorify you with my life, King Jesus? How can I glorify you with my life, King Jesus? And here's how we do it. We serve him. We obey him. We worship him. We consider him in all of our ways. We endeavor to be obedient to King Jesus. That means there's certain behavior that's got to go and there's certain new activities that got to come in. Now, when we fail at this, does anybody think they're going to fail? Come on. Does anybody think they're going to fail? Okay. When we fail at this, glorifying God in our bodies, conducting ourselves with fear toward God, then it's good to remember what verse 14 of Hebrews 9 says. Verse 14 of Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice what it says. Jesus cleanses our consciences. That means that he sets us free from guilt and condemnation. This is wonderful. Again, this is not to be ethereal or theoretical. This should be real in our lives. It is the heart of the Lord that you'd be free from condemnation and guilt. When you come before Jesus with forgiveness, the Bible teaches that he removes our sins, which means he removes the penalty of them and the weight of them and the guilt of them and the shame of them. He dealt with those things at the cross. And so what we've got to do when we fail, and we're going to fail, what we must do when we fail is lay hold of by faith this theological reality that the blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences. We have a hard time with this because we're a sick religious people. And we like to beat ourselves up, don't we? Somehow it gives us satisfaction. I'll feel better about my sin if I flog myself about it. And we're also really good at doing this with other people, aren't we? I'll feel better about their sin against me if I flog them about it. And we love to hold these things against ourselves and against others, but that is contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. 
It is such a grievous sin to hold against ourselves what Jesus Christ has forgiven and cleansed and removed by his blood. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. We've been set free. Satan wants you to feel condemned. Your religious flesh will play into it. You need to stand firm and resist the devil, as James 4, 7 says. He'll flee from you and be free in the blood and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to be loaded down with guilt. He has set you free to experience peace and joy even when you fail. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's good news because we're failures, but he deals with it. He forgives it. Notice what it says. He cleanses our consciences so that we can serve the living God. Don't misunderstand this. He has set us free from sin so that we might be free to serve. We are free from sin that we can be free to serve or to worship a God. A lot of Christians misunderstand this. They talk about freedom in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Don't judge me, brother. I've got Christian liberty in this issue. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean to be set free by Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're now free to sin. That's not what that means. It means that we're free from sin and free to serve. It says there that he has cleaned our consciences to serve the living God. And so many people have a disconnect. They never get beyond being free from that we might serve him. We've been set free that we might serve You've got to make that connection. Yes, we've been saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We have been saved by grace through faith and not of works that no man should boast. But don't forget verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved and set free that we might serve Jesus the King. We've got to make that connection. Do not abuse your freedom. Do not discount your grace. You are free from sin. It is no longer master over you. And you're free to serve, to worship, to follow the living God. The goal of our cleansing is for the service and the worship of the living God. Make that point of application. Brothers and sisters, God is a missionary God. Missions does not mean overseas. It means the world around you. God is on mission in your family, in your friends, in your workplaces, in your school. God is on mission. One of the greatest ways that we honor God is by being involved in the things that thrill his heart. You know what thrills his heart? Setting the captives free. Seeing the broken healed. Seeing those who are in bondage delivered and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. You know what thrills the heart of the father? When his kids are involved in his work. When his kids take an interest in what he's doing. God is on mission. Are you on mission? You need to be on mission. God is on mission in the world around you. Within your sphere of influence, there are opportunities to serve the living God. Your consciences are clear. They're free. You have life. The burden has been removed. Share it with others. Be on mission. Now, verses 16 through 21, make this new covenant analogous to a will. And it simply says in those verses that for a will to go in effect, someone has to die. And so a covenant then, a will, is ratified by blood, signifying death. We're not even going to read it. We went over that last week when we read Exodus chapter 24 in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant being ratified by blood. The new covenant is also ratified by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Luke 22 verse 20. This is a cup of the new covenant in my blood and it went into effect at the the death of Jesus Christ. Concerning the blood, let's look at verse 22. 
And according to law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Here is an important theological point for us to understand. Difficult for us to understand and somewhat tenuous to communicate because we live in a time and a culture far removed from blood sacrifice. At least you and I do, most of us, I hope. We live in a culture and a time far removed from blood sacrifice. But it made perfect sense to the Hebraic audience, to the Jews who had known for thousands of years blood sacrifice because of their sins. What does it say here? According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. By the way, don't think that almost is some loophole for people to get saved apart from Jesus Christ. It says almost because in the Old Testament there were some people that couldn't afford an animal for sacrifice and so God allowed them to bring the fruit of their fields, flowers, so on and so forth. And so God made a way for the poor to still be part of the covenant for the covering of sins. But our point is this, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is universal. This is absolute truth. This is a way that God set it up. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I understand that it's foreign to our culture and our mindset. I understand that people don't even like it. Blood, why blood? Why do you have to die? Why all this blood thing? Let me tell you something very important. Nobody cares if you like it or not. (laughs) Nobody cares how you feel about it. I don't like it. The cross, it was so bloody. Nobody cares what you think about it. It's God's design. This is the way God did it. Well, I don't agree. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? You don't agree with God? That's your problem. Shut your mouth. (laughs) God is always right. This is the way God set it up. Well, I don't get it. Well, let me, let me help you get this. Get this. Your sin did not obligate God to do a dang thing. God did not have to do anything about the sin of humanity. He could have said, easy come, easy go. I made him out of dirt. There they go. He didn't have to do anything about our sin. You may not understand it, but you should rejoice in the fact that God made a way. You should rejoice in the fact that he has done something about our sin, though he wasn't obligated. Now, what he's done about our sin is he's given us the blood. Without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Okay. Because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die, said the Lord. What sin brings, what sin earns, what sin produces, the debt, the wages of sin is death. So then what could ever pay that debt? But a life. Makes perfect sense. What could ever pay that debt incurred, which is death, but a life? Now, what God has designed into the world is that life is in the blood. If you drain your blood from your veins, you're not going to live. I don't care what you put in it. Red Bull, Rockstar, Monster, Pizza, it doesn't matter what you put in there. If you drain the blood, you're no living. You're dead, muerto, it's over. The life is in the blood. Look what God says, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, the Lord speaking. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is, by the, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The life is in the blood. The wages of sin is death. What could pay for that death but a life? Jesus Christ came and gave his life, had the thorns pressed into his brow and the flesh ripped from his back and the nails pushing through his hands and his feet and bled to pay our price that we might have life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he has done. He has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. 
for us to be redeemed from the auction block of sin, to break the power structure of sin in our lives and to give us new life, eternal life, and an inheritance in heaven. This is what God has done and it's wonderful. This is what God has done. It says there in verse 22, for the forgiveness of sins, it could be translated remission, aphesis in the Greek. What it means there, that word used for forgiveness in verse 22, it means to send away from. We've got to lay hold of this. The blood of Jesus Christ sends away from us sin. The penalty, the power, it's broken. He sends it away. Therefore, it's stupid when once you've confessed it to the Lord to feel guilty about it. I know it makes sense in the human realm. I know you want to feel guilty. I know you want other people to feel guilty. But if it's been confessed to Jesus Christ, dude, it's under the blood. It's under the blood. And what it says technically and theologically in verse 22 is once it's under the blood, it's been taken away. It's been removed. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Thank you, Lord. So forgive yourselves and forgive others. Jesus said in the way that you've been forgiven, forgive others. Forgive yourselves and forgive others. This is the application of this doctrine of grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgive yourself and forgive others. In that is healing and freedom. Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices in these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now, look at this phrase, to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the one who puts away sin. You know when you got a little kid and they're just fooling with something they shouldn't fool with and you're just saying, put that thing away. Jesus has come and put away our sin. We were fooling with it. Some of you are still fooling with it. Jesus deals with it. He puts it away. You having trouble feeling connected to God? Get on your face and worship him. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. When Jesus gave his life for you, you need to know that he did it willingly. Every lamb, every ox, Every bull that was ever drugged to the tabernacle or the temple went with their heels dug in before their throats were slit. But Jesus Christ went willingly for you and I. He said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus did it willingly. Why? Because the Father loves you. The Father loves you. Forget about your earthly father. Forget about his failures. Forget about his not being there. Forget about the wounds. You have another father who's totally different, the Father in heaven. And he loves you with a perfect love. Don't sin by reflecting upon your heavenly father the failures of your earthly father. Don't do it. He is altogether different. He's altogether wonderful. And he loves you with a perfect love so much so that his son willingly came and gave his life for God so loved you. God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He died, he rose, he ascended. And as verse 24 says, Jesus has gone into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Only Jesus gets us there. He's gone to appear in the presence of God for us as the forerunner, 
From Hebrews 6.20, the one who goes and secures the line that those who are behind might pull themselves in. He goes before us as a mediator and the guarantor of the better covenant. He stands before God as the advocate. If any of you sins, know that you have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus, 1 John 2.1. And he goes to stand in the presence of God as the intercessor. The one who bears the wounds that testify to the fact that he spilled the blood that removes the sin of you and I, that our consciences might be cleared, that we might be forgiven, that we might forgive, that we might walk in freedom and victory and wholeness healed and set free by the sovereign redeemer who came to seek and save the lost, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who gets us there. Colossians 1, and although you are formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's going to be you in heaven. Blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for being the rescuer and the redeemer. Lord, we ask together now that there be nobody in this room that hasn't been rescued. Lord, you alone know the hearts if there's anybody here that has never truly repented of their sins and by faith accepted what you did on the cross for them. Cause them to do it today. Lord, help them to humble themselves and to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're a savior. I've been wrong and you are totally right. I repent of my sins. Save me, God. Lord, do that in this place and wash people clean. Cleanse their consciences. Wash them white as snow. Give them the hope of heaven. Give them a clean slate. Bless them with your presence in their life. And Lord, we just pray that nobody here would fall short of the grace of God. Nobody be trapped in legalism. Nobody be trapped in religion or in performance, but we be walking according to the Spirit free from the power of sin, victorious over the schemes of the enemy. That's who you've called us to be. We claim that by the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Help us to walk free from condemnation, free from shame, free from those same old sins, free from the schemes of the enemy. Teach us to walk in victory according to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you need help today, there's a prayer team up to your left. They're mighty in prayer. They'll pray for you. God will do things. Prayer changes things because God listens and God is able. Maybe you're feeling far off and you don't want to be. Come and get on your face. The Father's seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The veil in the temple was torn in two. The way's been opened to the Holy of Holies. So let's enter in together.